We thank you so much uh, for the truth of the words that we sang, that you are our sure and our steady anchor. Lord, we pray that those are not mere words, that as we look at our, your words today, we look at your commandments to us and the challenges that you have for us, we recognize that your word is based on your love. It's an expression of your goodness, of your holiness, of your perfection. And I pray that as we look at what you say to us in your word today, that you would give us hearts to hear what you have to say to us. So we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, 12 years ago, I was attending my home church in New Jersey. Oh, hold on a second. Kids are dismissed. Okay, that's important. I knew I would forget something running back and forth, but okay. Well, at least they're on their way. So anyway, start again. 12 years ago, I was at my home church, and the pastor at the time, he was giving a, a, a sermon on the topic of marriage. Now, because there were a lot of single people in the church, he wanted them to understand as he preached this important topic that this message was not just for the married people in the congregation. It was a message for everyone. He didn't want the single people to check out on him. He didn't want the single people to tune out what he had to say because he, they thought it was just a message for married people. So like pastor often would do, he would move towards the congregation and he would get down. And, he, and this is what he said. He said, single people, don't check me out. And then he waited and he said it again. Single people, don't check me out. Now he had no clue what he had just said. But at that very moment, the worship pastor, a good friend of mine, let out one of those audible, you know, like people do when they're trying not to laugh. And he's turning beet red, doing everything he can to, but, to keep from busting out into laughter in the middle of this sermon. I'm sure they had a great laugh about this incident um, at their staff meeting that week. Well, the good news for everyone here is that today's message literally is a message that has words for both the single and words for the married in our midst. So just to be clear, there's to be no checking out of anybody here today, single or married. But I want everybody to be tuned in to what God's word says to us today. Now, as you know, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And in this letter, we're in chapter 7 now, there's a turn in the theme of this letter. At this point, Paul begins to address some specific questions that the Corinthian church had for him. And he, be, he even starts this section by saying, now concerning the questions that you had. So as we're going to see that Paul is not giving a complete um, theology of both singleness and marriage in this passage. He is responding to specific questions um, that this, this church has. And he gives his answers um, in, in relation to those questions. So I think the big idea that we see in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 9, where we're going to be this week, is that because God has gifted believers in celibacy or marriage, we should honor and obey him in the situation he directs us to. Because God has gifted believers in celibacy or marriage, we should honor and obey him in the situation he directs us to. So we're going to, like I said, we're going to read from the letter of 1 Corinthians in chapter 7, beginning verse 1 to verse 9. So if you have your Bibles, you can read along. 
Otherwise, the words will be up on the screen. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 9. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife, uh, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. So I think we see first in this passage that God gives loving rules for sex that govern the behavior of both the married and the unmarried. God gives loving rules for sex that govern the behavior of both the married and the unmarried. Now, we do need to understand the context of the questions from the, the Corinthians in this. See, in this verse, like we said, we see a shift where Paul is uh, speaking things that's on his mind, it's on, that God led him to say, and he's also now speaking things specifically to answer questions that the Corinthian church had for him. Now, we don't know the specific questions that we ask, that they ask, but we can deduce based on Paul's answer to the sort of questions that they were asking. See, Paul here, again, is not producing a full theology on everything that the Bible says about singleness and marriage. He's answering these specific questions. And, and we, we will be looking at some of, a broader understanding of what uh, God's Word says about marriage, when we, next month when we're in the book of Ephesians, there's a major section in there that talks about husbands and wives and children even. And, and when we're going through that, the, the, the study in Ephesians next month when we meet here as a church with our families. Now, what Paul chooses to address here in chapter 7, you have to remember it's on the heels of everything he just said in chapter 6, okay? It's not a new letter. He's continuing this conversation with them. Remember what uh, Pastor Marv led us through last week when we were in chapter 6. In, in chapter 6, verse 18, Paul said, flee from sexual immorality. Get away from it, right? Flee. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person is sins against his own body. Now, whatever we feel about Paul's answers here in this chapter, and this is a hard chapter, Whatever we feel about what Paul says is God's will in this chapter, we have to remember that when God gives us rules, he's doing so out of love for us. When he says, don't do this, it's like a parent that tells a child, young child not to touch the stove. It's based on love, even if we don't understand why it is that he tells us to do it. In here, Paul had just said that every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who sins sexually is, is sinning against their own body. They're really hurting themselves 
when they struggle or when they give in to the temptation in that area. See, the, we, we already talked about how sexual immorality had overtaken uh, the, uh, the, the city of Corinth. It was, it was so culturally acceptable to um, have, have sexual relations in, in so many contexts outside of marriage. And so that was the situation that Paul was coming in with. See, there were actually some in the church that because that, that, that mindset of the body is not important, physical things aren't important, that way you could just do whatever you want, there were others that took a little bit an opposite of you. Because the body and the physical wasn't important, they wanted to live an ascetic life and have nothing to do with sex, even within marriage. See, Paul, though, is refuting this idea that physical is bad because he made us with physical bodies. When he created Adam and Eve, he told them to, um, uh, to go and f fill the earth, right? Um, God is not saying sex itself is bad. He's not pushing down the idea of sex. And that's why Paul is telling married couples not to stop. Such a restriction was only for the unmarried. Now, in this passage and throughout chapter 7, Paul does give some hard rules to follow as we continue through this letter. But we also see some suggestions where he gives freedoms and tells them that they have the choice in certain aspects. Even in this section, we see that they have the choice to choose together as a couple to refrain for a, a short time in order to devote themselves to prayer. See, where freedom exists, unique circumstances should be considered. Where freedom exists, unique circumstances should be considered. Now, we said that the Corinthians, some of them were actually practicing asceticism, where they, were, they had this culturally low view of the physical. Now, and some were using this as a license to place no limitations on sex, and others were using it to say that they don't want to have anything to do with sex, even within marriage. But there is actually something else that was probably going on in the Corinthian church at the time. Now, if you think, I'll give you some dates and times, but Paul was originally in Corinth for about a year and a half in the years 50 to 51 A.D., okay? After he left in 51 or so, he was writing this letter to the Corinthian church, probably from Ephesus in the year 55. So there was a few-year period, okay? Now, during that few-year period, there were a couple famines that had spread throughout the Roman Empire. Now, we just got through our own season of um, a time where, where the world was upside down during the COVID mess for a few years. But during this, these famines, having something to eat was a, comp a very difficult thing. The laws of economics don't change. If there's not enough supply and there's the same amount of demand, prices go up. If there's, um, it's just like it is today when there's a shortage of supply. Some remember last summer when we, there was a shortage of uh, baby formula and people were um, having difficulty um, obtaining the formula that they needed to feed their children. Now, the severity of these famines and the unrest throughout the Roman Empire during this brief time where Paul was away led some to believe that this was the sign that Jesus was about to return at any moment. And surely we are supposed to have an expectation that Jesus could return at any moment. But I, I think about the words where Jesus says in Mark 13, 17 to 19, and alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not 
been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Now, of course, Mark's gospel was actually written around 70 AD, but we know the words of Jesus and the things that he said and did were already spreading orally around the Roman Empire before the the four gospels were written down in their final form. So whether this church um, knew the specific words of Jesus or not from the Gospel of Mark, there was, there was a certain realistic aspect to it, a pragmatic thing. It's like, if there's this huge famine going on, is this really a good time to get married and start having children that we don't know if we'll be able to feed? So there was a situational, a realistic situational concern, and that may have to do with some of why Paul was saying, it's good for you to remain as I am. But, I think there is also an eternal truth to that as well. For some that God has called to a life of signalness and celibacy, for those God has called, there are things that they can do that married people cannot do. Where Paul was traveling all around the Roman Empire, facing all kinds of persecution, beatings, um, he was hungry many times, all kinds of things that Paul suffered, how would he have been able to go to all the places that he did if he was trying to care for a wife, and care for young children. Well, obviously, if God had called him to that, God would have provided, but we can see very often that God can do some special things in the lives of those that he calls to a life of signalness, like he did in the life of Paul. I mean, (laughs) he called, the Lord sent Jesus to live a life as a single man and to die for the sins of the world upon the cross. God always has things that he wants to do in the lives of single people. So you may sense a certain freedom in the stage of the life that you are in, where you don't necessarily sense that God is saying, in terms of being married or in terms of being single, a clear direction or a call. But you can be sure that, um, um, that God is leading you and God is guiding you and he is giving you wisdom in that situation. And, he, and if you ask, he will give you discernment. You see, the Holy Spirit gives special guidance to individuals when exercising freedoms. The Holy Spirit gives special guidance to individuals when exercising freedoms. See, the Lord will give you discernment if he's calling you to a life of singleness and celibacy. Now, if he calls you that and puts that call upon your life, it doesn't mean that you would have zero desire for sex. It doesn't mean that you would never find anything about married life appealing, right? doesn't mean that, but there's a certain sense that the Holy Spirit uh, gives you discernment to see that God is leading you to live in in that way, and that he will give you the power that you need to glorify him in that situation. And if you're not sure, he will help you discern if if, if marrying, if getting married is something that he has for you. It may, be it's, it may be a call that you need to wait for a time. See, Paul's encouragement towards being like him, it doesn't elevate singleness and celibacy above married life, but it certainly is not a diminished life in the view of Paul and in the view of the Lord. We know that, as Pastor Marv mentioned last week, sometimes the single person has a special intimacy with the Lord That would make married people jealous. (laughs) Um, There's a certain ability that they have in many cases to be able to seek the face of the Lord because they don't have the the distractions and the need to to have their minds focused on a spouse and a family. 
Now, if God has gifted you, he will empower you in that gifting. If God has gifted you, he will empower you in that gifting. Remember what Paul said in verse 7. It said, each has his, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, the word for gift here is charisma. It's the same Greek word for gift used in chapter 12 of this letter when it speaks of spiritual gifts. So the same word used in chapter 12 of spiritual gifts is the word that's used here for gift in chapter 7. Now, whether we would classify celibacy and marriage as spiritual gifts or not, like preaching and prophesying or tongues, we can, be cer we can certainly are correct to think of celibacy and marriage as gifts. We can be certain that if God gives us a gift, whether it's celibacy or marriage, he will empower us in that gifting. See, some believers are called and gifted for celibacy and singleness. Some believers are called and gifted for celibacy and singleness. Now, too often the, treat, the church can treat marriage as if it's God's will for every person. And I think this has done much harm in the church, where at times the church treats people, whether intentionally or unintentionally, like that's what they're supposed to be doing. I made me think um, of a of a friend, uh, she, she's a college minister, and she, she sensed in her young life a, a specific call to singleness and celibacy, at least for this stage in her life. And she knows that this is a calling from God, and she lives into it with excitement, because it, and, they, and she really sees how God uses her in ways that he would not be able to use her if she were married. But oftentimes, she, she gets lots of little comments and things like, oh, God has someone for you. I'm praying that God finds someone for you. And these are well-meaning things that people say. Other times they just ask questions. Well, uh, do you, is there anybody you have your eye on? Is there any guys in your life? Do you have any friends? And it's, it may come from good intentions, but oftentimes it's almost like people are causing her to question her call from God or to make her feel like if this, this calling that she has in her life is, is not from God. And she wants to remind herself and wants to stay focused on God that God, in fact, has called her to this life of celibacy uh, to, so that she can be used for the kingdom the way God intends. Now, there is a difference between encouraging a single person that's expressing their desire to be married, who's expressing their frustration over being single, and encouraging that person and trying to give advice where it's not asked for. You know, there's a reality that many people actually rush into marriage because either of a, a cultural or societal pressure or even direct pressure from loved ones that the thing that they ought to be doing is being married. And I think a lot of times that, that sets up problems in marriage because people are getting married for the wrong reasons in order to do something that they feel they're supposed to be doing by a certain age. And that's a, a big source of some of the marriage problems that we see in the world. And I want you to think about something for a second. Imagine that you have a serious long-term illness or weakness. And, and maybe you're in chronic pain or something like that. Imagine if you went to a friend 
and, and you shared your frustrations, even some of your anger about what you're dealing with. And they kind of scolded you and said, you need to learn to be content. Maybe God has called you to uh, a life of dealing with this illness or this sickness. That, would that be something that you, you would say to a friend if they came to you? No, we wouldn't do that, but oftentimes the church goes the other way and treats single people as if they're sinning because they're struggling with being single and they're waiting for God to answer their prayers. If you're single and that's you, and I want to encourage you to continue to pour out your heart to God and know that uh, God loves you and God, uh, God cares about you. You're not, doing, you're not sinning because you desire that. Quite often that, that's God giving you that desire for that. You see, God gives many the gift of marriage. God gives many the gift of marriage. But marriage is not a superior or inferior gift to the gift of celibacy. Remember we said Paul is answering specific questions to the Corinthian church. But remember what he says in verse 8. He said, To the unmarried and widows, and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than burn with passion. Now, sadly, some have distorted the meaning of this verse to say that promiscuous people, who are people who are struggling with that, should just get married in order to solve the problems of promiscuity. See, even in this verse taken in isolation doesn't say that. It contrasts being married with burning with passion. In other words, that the marriage is considered better than if they were committing sexual immorality. In other words, in the marriage, they're not committing sexual immorality anymore. It does not say that get married in order to avoid sinning. Yet marriage is not meant to be reduced to a concession for, for people who struggle with lust. In fact, marriage is meant to symbolize the relationship between Christ and his church. That's what Christian marriage is supposed to symbolize. Like we said, we'll be looking in Ephesians in the month of August, but if you went to Ephesians 5, you would see the high sacrifice and high um, selflessness that both husbands and wives were to have towards one another. So if you think of it this way, for those who it's better to marry than burn with passion, it's now God's will for them to love, for husbands, for example, to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And when they're doing that, that's certainly better than burning with passion. So we see that sex within marriage should be joyfully shared between husband and wife. Sex within marriage should be joyfully shared between husband and wife. Now, remember what verse 3 said. I'll read it again. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Now, what's interesting is that it speaks of the husband first, it has two parallels, right? Husband, wife, then wife, husband. The emphasis is actually on the husband in this passage. Now, we can miss this because we live in an egalitarian culture where it's, where it's normal to, 
treat men and women the same, to say women and men can do the same things. That's part, that's built into our culture, even our, even unchristian culture, that we, we live in a place, time and place where we're spoke, most people, at least in word, agree with that idea and that mindset. But that was not the case when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church. It would have been a scandalous thing to say to, it would have been normal to say the women, basically their bodies belong to their husband, but to say that the husband's body belongs to the wife, that would have seemed scandalous. And the fact that Paul is making, drawing emphasis to that um, sends, says it even morely. You see, some have actually twisted this verse to suggest that the husband or the wife can demand, um, that the, the, the place demands on their spouse for their sexual desires. But of course, think about this logically. If each spouse has authority over the other, let's take the husband in, in this instance. Is the hus- husband is trying to demand sex. The wife is the one that has authority over his body. He's not allowed to do what he wants with his own body because his body is hers. Some have even used it to justify spousal rape. But we clearly can see that that is not what's intended by what Paul is saying here. Yet we have to wrestle with what it does say. It does say that both are still to not deny one another. But there is an individual submission to one another in that, that each person is voluntarily giving themselves to the other. And I think we have to remember that this command coexists with other commands of husbands and wives in Scripture. Okay, we can't just take this one, one, these two verses and forget all the other things that Paul says and others say about marriage in the Bible. See, it doesn't indicate some sort of right to demand sex from the other person. If you're not fulfilling your vows to your spouse to love, honor, and cherish, if you're not, if husbands, if you're not following the command to love Christ as Christ loved the church, who are you to, to, be, to, to act like your wife should be doing something for you? You're not obeying scripture. If you're claiming that she's not obeying scripture, neither are you. See, if, if, your, current, if your spouse is currently denying you, we have to understand that that doesn't justify other outlets for your desires. In many cases, it's an, an indication that you are not fulfilling your vows to your spouse. Not always, but in many cases, when one spouse, spouse is being denied, it's, it's, in, it's in reaction to the other spouse not fulfilling their biblical vows um, to their spouse. So we see marriage won't heal a dysfunctional relationship or solve sexual addiction. Marriage won't heal a dysfunctional relationship or solve a sexual addiction. Now, many couples that experience serious problems and dysfunctionality in their dating relationships, they're tempted to think that marriage is the cure for the problems that they're experiencing. But quite often, it's the opposite. The marriage only amplifies and exasperates the dysfunctions that were present in their dating relationship. What's interesting is that quite often, when couples begin to have dysfunction in their dating relationships, it's not before they begin to cave into sexual temptations. It often is after that they've begun to break what God's word says about sex. It's after they've given into those temptations that they often then begin to have 
dysfunction in their relationship. And marriage will not cure whatever is dysfunctional in that relationship. That doesn't mean that there's no hope for the couple, but it does mean is that whatever problems need to be dealt with while they're dating um, will be harder to deal with once they are married. Now, if you're battling a pornography addiction or lust in general, the statistics say that even in the church, um, a majority of men struggle with pornography. That's statistically true. And if you're battling a pornography addiction or lust in general, marriage will not solve that. Perhaps early in your honeymoon phase, maybe it'll go away for a time, but in time it will come roaring back. Because marriage cannot solve a problem that is not just based on a desire for sex the way God intended. It's an addiction and you need help. It'll come back and it'll create ruin and havoc in your marriage. And if you're struggling with those temptations and you're in the dating stages of your life, get help before you get married. Don't think that marriage will solve those temptations because it's not a physical temptation. It's, it's tied up with your mind and the wiring of your brain. And those, those addictions will continue on into a marriage. But what about those of us who are married and who struggle to honor our spouse in some way or another? The good news is, is that the Holy Spirit will empower the married to honor each other and the Lord. The Holy Spirit will empower the married to honor each other and the Lord. You think Paul would have said it is good for those that burn with passion to get married if there wasn't hope from the Holy Spirit? Of course not. You see, we all need the Holy Spirit's empowerment in our lives. And what, what that means, we need to cry out to Jesus to help us. We need to yield our lives completely to him. We need to die to ourselves. All of us need Christ's life at work in us through his Holy Spirit. So this is true whether there is no sexual temptation in your life. If your desire is 100% only for your spouse and you're not tempted in any way sexually, there are other temptations in areas of your life in which you need the Holy Spirit's help. You need the life of Jesus abiding in you. But we, we know this, that James 5.16 gives us a challenge, and it's kind of a hard teaching. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You see, even though the Holy Spirit indwells each of us who are believers, think about what Paul says in Ephesians. He says, in 2.22, in Christ, you who are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are supposed to go through this process of sanctification, not on little islands by ourselves, but we are supposed to come alongside other brothers and sisters in Christ as we struggle, because the Holy Spirit is building us up together into a spiritual house a dwelling place for God by his spirit. He does it in community, not in isolation, alone. So, as I said at the beginning, single and married people don't check out on me. Okay, I said it correctly. I got it right. 
All of us here, whether, whatever status you are in in your life, you need other believers. You need others. You don't have to tell what your struggles are to the entire church, but you do need other brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside with you to help you grow in your faith. That's true of married people. It's also true of single people. We all need other believers to come alongside us in whatever ways we are tempted. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank, we thank you that you love all of us, whether you have called us to a life of celibacy, called us to a life of marriage. For those of us who are single but have a desire to be married, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would bring a challenge and conviction, that we would one sense know your true love, but we would also seek to glorify you in every aspect of our life, whatever life stage we find ourselves in. Forgive us for the arrogance of thinking that we can live the Christian life on our own without others like your word instructs us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that those of us who are struggling in some ways, that you would bring a person to mind in their lives whom you are calling them to share what they're struggling with others with. And I pray, Lord, that they would, they would experience your love your forgiveness, your peace, and you would, you would make us whole. Lord, all of us here, whether we have struggled with sexual sin or other sins, all of us are in need of your Savior. And all of us needed Jesus to die on the cross and pay for our sins. And so, Lord, I pray we also don't forget that just as we cannot save ourselves, we cannot sanctify ourselves. We need your Holy Spirit. We need to abide in you, and we need brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside us in whatever stage of life we find ourselves in. So we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.